What's up, Law Nation? Hope everyone is having a fantastic, productive week, that you're living in the discomfort zone and making positive changes in every aspect of your life. I remember when I was working at a big firm, I felt like I didn't have time to do anything else but bill hours. But I did know deep down inside that I needed to find a way to create financial freedom because I know exactly what that felt like. I'm inviting you to join Epic, the Esquire Passive Investor Club, so that you can really become part of my world and open yourself up to passive investment opportunities and a vast network of like-minded folks. It'll only take a minute, so just go to PassiveIncomeAttorney.com and click join the club. All right, today we'll get a double dose of a fresh female perspective on investing in a male-dominated industry. This is the first time I've had two guests on at the same time, so bear with me a little bit. Our first guest of honor is Jennifer Santoso, who I met in person at my very first ever real estate meetup, uh, which she herself was the host. She began her career in management consulting and business leadership through leading firms like Booz Allen and Deloitte. She's now the associate director at Toro Capital Advisors and is an expert in all things commercial real estate. Our second guest of honor is Elisa Frundlich. She's a Loyola law grad, fully recovered attorney, and Senior Director at Toro Capital Advisors. She brings over 25 years of business experience and legal expertise, and just like me, she's passionate about educating attorneys and other professionals about creating multiple streams of income outside of their primary career. All right, folks, let's get it going. This is the Passive Income Attorney Podcast where you'll discover the secrets and strategies of the ultra wealthy on how they build streams of passive income to give them the freedom we all want. Attorney Seth Bradley will help you end the cycle of trading your time for money so you can make money while you sleep. Start living the good life on your own terms. Now, here's your host, Seth Bradley. Alisa and Jen, welcome to the Passive Income Attorney Podcast. Great to have you guys on. Great to be here. Thank you so much for having us, Seth. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. So let's just jump right in. I mean, tell me what's your story and feel free to brag a little bit. Um, Jennifer, you want to go first? Sure. Uh, so I started a real estate investing meetup two and a half years ago in person before COVID. Uh, I focused on multifamily syndication. I was attracted to the complexity of it uh, and to the passive income uh, potential of it. I did raise funds for two local properties, two local syndications. Uh, and I met you through that, Seth, and, you know, happy to be here today. Connected with Elisa and other members of Toro Capital Advisors also through the meetup. Very cool. Very cool. Elisa? So uh, I just have to say, Jen is an amazing connector because she connected me to you. And yep. uh, I have been a real estate attorney for over 30 years, started with um, uh, several different law firms sequentially, obviously, in LA. I live uh, most of the time in Los Angeles. And so I was with a big, um, fairly well-known law firm that did a lot of land use. And my background was purchase and sale, land use, finance, you know, pretty much everything. Uh, before that, actually, my first job out of law school was a banking law firm. So I started in bank regulatory law, uh, which later became helpful. So as I got into real estate, um, the whole field of real estate was fascinating to me. 
And when you're in a big law firm, uh, they try to pigeonhole you. You know, you just do the, the, the loans for a particular client or the leases for a particular client. And I really wanted to know how the whole thing worked. Mm-hmm. Didn't want to be stuck in, in one little lane. And, uh, you know, as I stayed there, I learned, I got uh, put on a huge development uh, project called Playa Vista. It was the development of like hundreds of acres. It was, it was an amazing thing to work on. And a, and a lot of other uh, really relevant experience. And the more I learned, the more I just felt like one day I wanted to own and be involved in real estate. Uh, and I wound up going in-house with a client, a couple law firms later. Uh, and this client was a, a high net worth family, not a real estate family. They'd made their money in a different business, but they wanted to diversify into real estate. So I came in and help them put together uh, a family office and a portfolio and ran that for eight years uh, as a general counsel and also co-invested. So that really got me launched in. Um, Before that, I sort of started buying on my own, but it was houses. Um, My first purchase was a house and we can circle back to that later. I actually think that's a, uh, a really good way to get started. Uh, when you've got a job and you need to work your day job, you know. And now um, I am doing investing. I'm doing uh, advisory work, capital advisory work, and I work with several clients and help them run their portfolios uh, really at a strategic level. That's awesome. Very, very cool. So I have a lot in common with you there. We, you know, I started in residential and house act into a duplex. Um, so I think, you know, that's a good place to start and, you know, you can still make a lot of money doing that. And I can certainly agree with you with the pigeonhole thing. I got pigeonholed at a large law firm into CMBS loans, and then I changed firms because of that. And I got pigeonholed into affordable housing loans. So I, I can certainly understand where you're coming from with that story. Yeah. I mean, that's the dynamic of the law firms to, to have efficiency. They, they need you to do a certain type of, um, business for them. Um, and I had sort of resisted that successfully and was able to bop around to a bunch of different departments, which came in very valuable as I became a general counsel. I was, you know, thrust into a lot of different stuff. We were doing uh, joint ventures with developers. We were doing development projects. We were doing regular investment. I did um, some very large brownfields redevelopment of of former landfills uh, in other states that we turned into golf course projects. I mean, you know, when you're in a family office, uh, you probably know this, you know, you sort of anything goes and you never know what you're gonna be doing. So uh, it was a pretty exciting time. uh, And I loved, uh, you know, being in the business side of things and becoming a partner in the real estate with this family really gave me a way to participate um, and build equity. And that became, you know, it was a small amount of equity, but it was important to me to start that. And it became my nest egg for later. Awesome. Yeah. That's awesome that they, they, they offered that to you, the equity. And that's, that's kind of what we strive for is we want passive income. We want something that we can participate in and be a business and we can grow. Um, so you told us a little bit about your previous law practice and what you what you kind of loved about it and what you hated about it. But, you know, did you have an aha moment where you're like, you know what, I need to invest in real estate myself rather than just doing it from the attorney side of the table? 
Um, I, that was always my goal. My parents were both uh, in real estate, actually. My dad uh, was a broker. My mom was a sales agent. They, so they sold houses and multifamily. And I sort of grew up uh, watching that. And, and over time, what, you know, it was so interesting. We grew up in the San Fernando Valley. And my dad would say, like, he bought his first house in Panorama City, I think when I was born, for $18,000. <laughs> right. Imagine yeah. buying anything for $18,000. So you really realize that real estate is a long game. Yep. And if you try to time it to get out at the top or buy at the bottom, you know, I always tell people, forget about it. The way to get in is to buy something that, uh, in my view, you would want to live in. So in case you don't find a tenant, right, what's your fallback? If your tenant walks out, can you live in your place and pay the rent? Uh, and conversely, if you can rent it and pay the mortgage uh, and, and even pocket a little extra, the mortgage, the taxes, the insurance, obviously. So, you know, put together a budget of your operating costs. And if, and if you can work it to a place, my rule of thumb has always been if with 20% down, you can get to positive cash flow then it's a buy because over time the market will go down and the market will go up but look at any long run 10 years or 20 years or longer and you'll see what real estate does in California anyway uh, and I'm and in, this is a conversation geared to California because if we went to Detroit or another metro we might see something different but look in California in 1998, I bought my house in Brentwood, which is a nice part of uh, LA. And, you know, I, it was a stretch. It was all the money I had and I had to borrow a lot of money from friends and family. And I <laughs> bought it for 800,000. Uh, and, you know, I thought, wow, that's a lot, but it was in an area of, of really good homes and it was on a big lot. And, you know, the appraised value now is more than, you know, 400% of that number. You know, it's, it's over four and a half million dollars. And there's properties in my neighborhood that are more. And it's uh, outrageous to me. I don't know how I would buy that house today. I, and I'm so thankful <laughs> I invested in that. But more important, the other sort of big win in California is the property tax savings. Because once you get in and you buy a property, uh, you have so far, I mean, there's been some legislative tests uh, on Prop 13, but it's held. And for single family or, or one to four family, at least, uh, I think that's a pretty safe bet that it's not gonna go away. So, you know, you get a huge savings in your property taxes yeah, based I, I, on when you bought it. Right, right. And I love that rule of thumb. I mean, it, it, you know, when property values go down, typically, and definitely in California, they're always going to go back up, but you get yourself in trouble when you can't pay that mortgage payment. If you can't pay the debt, that's where you get in trouble and you have to sell it, you know, at a major discount or you're going to foreclosure or something like that. But if you're able to hold it, and it can rent out for enough to pay the mortgage, you're good to go. So I don't know about you, but I really counsel my friends and clients. Most of my clients are commercial, uh, not residential, but I always take the 30-year loans. And I know for a long time, everybody was you know, taking the short-term money because they might've gotten 
uh, a break on the interest rates, but you can keep refinancing unlike commercial real estate where you're, where you're sort of locked in and you may have prepay. Prepay isn't allowed on residential, right? So I always take the 30 year money because I figure if somebody is going to loan me money for 30 years at three or 4%, I'm going to grab it. Because I remember that there was a time where we had inflation and interest rates were 12%. Um, and so, you know, that's unlikely given the burn rate at the Fed these days, but we don't know what's out there, right? We don't know when the next, you know, crisis happens and the dollar changes dynamics and interest rates shift. So, you know, to manage risk, I love the 30 year. I mean, you can't get a 30 year if you're doing commercial, you, good luck. You're between a five and a 10 year. So it's a gimme to be able to borrow 30 year money, right? Yeah, and once you own rates now. Right, and once you own the house, then what you do is you refinance it you pull the money out and then you use it as your piggy bank to go buy other real estate. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, Jen, do you want to jump in? Did you have kind of an aha moment where you started looking at alternative investments in real estate? I'll, I'll take a slightly different approach here. So I'm not an attorney. I have a management and leadership consulting background of 14 years. Uh, I was with Booz Allen, Deloitte, smaller companies as well. My client base was mostly depart the Department of Defense. It was a really interesting career because um, I was constantly learning something new, constantly being challenged with different clients, et cetera. Uh, and I also was not somebody who was born and raised loving money. I just, it just wasn't, you know, a central focus to me. But like with most everybody, we get to the point in our life where we learn and we realize there's never a point in our life we're not going to need money. So I just decided to take my leadership skill set uh, plus my interest in developing passive income to intersect those two and then uh, produce my meetup. Uh, the goal of my meetup was to do three things, put myself in a positive position where I could develop positive relationships with people, uh, see who the major players were, see how they perform through time, who I like and trust, and get connected to a group of people that I wanted to take the next part of my financial path and career with. So I've checked the box with all three and uh, also have gained a bit of equity on some financial raises. Similar to Lisa, it's not the hugest amount, but same thing. It's important to me. It's good to watch that money grow and continue to grow the passive income otherwise. Right. Yeah. I love that. I mean, it's just, it's about building multiple streams of passive income, right. And multiple streams of income and not just relying on one stream of income from your W2, you know, invest in real estate, invest in businesses, start side hustles, whatever it might be. You just right. can't be dependent on one stream. Not at all. Yeah. So let's uh, transition a little bit. And this is kind of a general question, but, uh, you know, Elisa, what advice would you give attorneys or other high income professionals who are thinking about transitioning out or at the very least looking to diversify into something, whether it's, you know, outside of the stock market. So whether it's real estate or maybe looking at a side hustle, I mean, where do they start? Well, I really try to tell people don't quit your day job because I think that um, particularly on the brokerage side, you know, it's very tough um, as a, a agent or salesperson when you're paid on commission, you know, you may not make a commission for a year. 
uh, and being on the sales side is great because you get to see deals happening, but you're not getting the income. Conversely, as a lawyer or an engineer or somebody with a strong day job, you're working so many hours that you don't have time to really go out and look at deals. And so, you know, you could do that on nights and weekends. So I think really the best place to start, and, and by the way, having that day job is essential because you need to qualify for a loan. And so in order to get a lender to give you money to buy the duplex or the fourplex, you want the income that you're showing off, you, you know, your day job. So I think that balancing that and buying, uh, you know, one to four units at the beginning is sort of a safer way to start. I say one to four units, you could certainly buy a car wash, you could certainly buy a commercial building, anything you like, there's no you know, maybe you're a mechanic and that's something that you, you would benefit from. So all those are available, but just know that the unique thing about housing, and I know you know this, so I'm saying it for your viewers, is that housing, you, you are protected on what they call non-recourse, meaning that if everything goes crazy and we have another, you know, unforeseen black swan event and you can't pay your loan, uh, they can't go against you personally, uh, but on a commercial loan, they can. And again, you're not gonna get that 30 year money, you're gonna get a five or 10 year loan and the terms are gonna be a lot tighter. So that's why as a first purchase, I really like a one to four unit, which falls into that basket of you know residential. Yeah, I like that too. I mean if your significant other will allow it, house hacking is the easiest way and probably the, the most beneficial way to jump into something. I mean, if you can get into a, a fourplex or a triplex or something like that and live in one unit, um, if you're up for it and your significant it, other is up for it, I mean, that's the way to go. And you only have to put, you know, three and a half percent down or 5% down and you get that low interest rate and 30 year mortgage that we were talking about. Yeah, I mean, most of the residential is is going to be a 20% down these days, uh, unless you're under a special program. But I agree with you about um, really, you know, the significant other thing. When I, I bought my first house before I met my husband, and, and it, it really, you know, it was a great starter, but I kind of had visions of going further. And then I bought like two more houses within three years and one day, and he would come home and he'd be like, you know, not sure if he wanted to ask me what I did today. And because it might be, I bought a new house. And then he said to me, you know, can't you buy shoes like other women? And so I've had this conversation with Elisa before. And the joke is that she's already bought all the shoes that she's wanted. So she <laughs> was moving on up to other more exciting purchases. How many pairs of shoes do you really need? I see that's the thing is I love owning something that's going to have long-term value. And I actually wish I hadn't sold my first two homes that I bought. Um, I needed to in order to move up, you know, in in what I was doing. But you know, there's so much value in owning real estate. And over the long term, you you really if if I look back to those you know, the first house I bought was, you know, 30 years ago. I wish I still owned it. I mean, it was amazing. Cheviot Hills, it was a great little area in LA. So, you know, I think that at the end of the day, I'd rather own something that's for not just 
for money. It's not about money for me. It's really about building value for the future. And I would love if everybody thought that this was something they could have. And when rents were going up crazy in LA, and I think there's San Diego's had crazy rent appreciation too over the last couple of years, I worry about how are people going to make it work? You know, if you are at the risk of a landlord and your rents are rising, I mean, owning a house is a safety net for your family. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, that's the thing is if you can hold on to the real estate, hold on to it as long as you can. I mean, if it's, it's cash flowing, keep it. If it's in a good market, keep it. It's just going to keep going up. So, and I know that you love and you enjoy teaching others about real estate and investing, but you know, a lot of attorneys are just conservative by nature. So, you know, how do we help them overcome that and just start thinking about, you know, investing in real estate and other alternative investments? That's a great question. And by the way, it's not just attorneys, right? You know, it's also accountants, you know, accountants <laughs> and CPAs who are really smart with taxes who know that the tax game of real estate is great, but they just want to be a renter and they don't want to worry about, you know, taking care of the house, being a landlord, signing the paperwork. So, you know, there's, there's a level of willingness. You have to be willing to learn all the new things you've never done. I'm a lawyer. And the first time I got a stack of loan docs to sign for a house, not just the loan docs, but like the paperwork to buy the house. Do you remember that? Yep. So you bought something, Seth, right? So the oh. first time you get, you get a stack of paperwork and you're like, you know, I can't sign all this stuff. And the lawyer <laughs> in you is like wanting to write it, you know, rewrite it and negotiate it. And you kind of just have to close your eyes and sign. Yeah. I mean, they give it to you on the day of closing and you're sitting there and you're just like, sign it. That's it. Sign it, take it or leave it. And you're like, wait, we're not going to negotiate this. <laughs> right. You, you can't negotiate your loan docs on a residential form. I mean, you, you, you pretty much have to sign as is. And same if you start negotiating your purchase and sale agreement in a hot market, nobody's going to, I mean, you have to sign the standard form. You just have to. And you, you know, you have to make your offers cleaner. You're not going to win the bid. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of faith involved and what you are relying on is you'll have an inspection period. It's usually in California on a residential, you know, uh, 14 to 21 days. And during that time, you'll do your due diligence and you'll have the right to get out of the deal. Right. So, and as a lawyer, you kind of know, you can pretty much get out of any deal because you'll find something wrong. Um, so, you know, the first step is make an offer and sign the purchase and sale agreement. And then you just have to go baby steps, inspection, baby step, you know, financing, baby step, move in. And once you do it once, you'll get, you'll build up your skill set and you'll realize this wasn't so hard. You know, millions and millions of people have bought real estate doing this. I used to have, when I was practicing law, I had a client who was a flipper. We called him Flipper Joe. And he would <laughs> literally, all he would do is tie up. It was a very, it was a time where it was a very hot market. And what he would do is he'd tie up commercial real estate with a purchase and sale agreement. He'd have that 20 day period to negotiate and do his inspections. And during that time, he'd flip it to 
another guy for a higher price and he'd just pocket half a million dollars or a million dollars or whatever he could get for assigning the contract. And I watched this guy make money. He had no legal background. He really had limited real estate background and he was making so much money. And I thought, why do I limit myself in the way that I yeah. do, right? Yeah, I had, it's kind of a similar moment. I mean, just closing deals as an attorney, you see these guys that are closing, you know, $100 million plus deals and they're not Donald Trump. They're not, you know, the Prince of Wales or something. They're just regular dudes. And you're like, oh, man, I can do this. Like, <laughs> I'm sophisticated. I should be on that side of the table. So there, right. there's a quote that I posted up on, I think it was, you know, somewhere in social media recently. And it's something to the degree of, um, you know, when you look at a mountain, climb the mountain and don't label how high it is until you look down and you see how short the path was. So it's always scary looking into it, but the moment you've done it, it's, you know, not so bad and you can potentially do it again easily. Right. I mean, once you've done it and you look back, you're like, man, that was easy. And now let's go bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's just kind of the pathway that you take. Um, so let's just pretend that we've, we've taken that leap of faith, you know, either actively as an investor or even passively while you're vetting deals. You know, what are some of the biggest risks um, that investors should be aware of? So when you get over to the commercial side, the risks are exponentially greater than the one to four unit residential side. And that's because on the one to four, you are protected on your loan docs uh, from a lot of things that don't happen on the commercial side, right? So there are a lot of debt covenants that can become problematic. And for me, I think having had a 30 year career and watching guys big and small, and it's mostly guys, let's face it, you know, commercial real estate for the most part has been a guy's game. It's changing now, but, but it's, you know, it's been a guy's game. And where you get into trouble is your loan is coming due and your tenant leaves the building and now you can't make your mortgage. Or your loan didn't come due, you just maybe have another two or three years left, but your tenant left and you can't get another tenant. So, so with a tenanted building, cash flow and, and risk management vis-a-vis -vis the debt become super important. Now you can look at just this past year under COVID as a great example, right? Multifamily was one of the hottest sectors. I mean, everybody was buying multifamily, rents were rising like crazy. COVID hits and what happens, federal government and state government slap on a moratorium. You can't evict anybody. And so now you can't pay your mortgage. And Thankfully, you know, there was some concessions given by the banks and the banks were giving everybody forbearance agreements. I don't know how much longer that lasts. Uh, and now they've just extended the eviction moratorium on renters until June of 2021, June 30 is the date now. So, you know, I don't know where that's going, but that's a great example of risk in the system when you're on a commercial. Other risks can be environmental problems, but you know your greatest risk is is a mismatch of your revenue and your debt. And if you don't have debt, you can weather the storm. You know there are people who've owned their buildings, paid off their debt, 
they're okay or they have a big nest egg, at least enough nest egg. I always try in my mind to have enough money if I'm syndicating or doing a partnership. I try to hold back in my uh, reserve accounts enough to pay the mortgage for six months minimum, six months of mortgage, uh, also taxes and insurance. It, ideally, it would be a year. Um, and if I, depending on my investors, some of them agree, some of them don't. But you know, that's where you start to have risk. It's just, it's just a payments problem, and it's manageable. It's manageable by having cash flow that you've set aside for the rainy day. Right, right. And you had mentioned kind of the unknown, I guess, the, the unknown effects from the pandemic, but let's rewind just a little bit. I mean, you've, you've been in the real estate world for a while and seen a couple of different crashes. So, you know, what, I guess, to start out with, did you learn from those crashes? And then we'll kind of go into what you might be seeing um, in, the, in the near future. It's a great question. So, you know, uh, 2008, which was sort of the last big crisis before this one, was a unique crisis in that it was really a bubble from the SNL lending uh, and a lot of um, not just SNLs, but you know, bank lending for housing. The big bubble was like countrywide, and all these guys were out making loans, and people were buying multiple homes without really having the ability to service it. And then all those, when the market turned south, you know, the thing just all went back to the banks and there's just massive destruction in the housing market. So that was a very unique time. It, it tanked a lot of, you know, financial institutions and there was fallout from it that went beyond the housing. But, it, but in terms of the real estate ramifications, it was most targeted to housing wind back to the crisis that I remember before that, which was the savings and loan crisis. And that was a lot of construction lending that went, up, went south, B of A, a lot of big banks were caught up in that. So it wasn't just SNLs, but a lot of SNLs were wiped out. And I had been a bank regulatory attorney. So I was sort of in that time period where I had banks that were my clients clients, savings and loans that were my clients. And it was amazing because my savings and loans guys were just making ridiculous loans to, to like anybody that walked in that was a nice guy could get a loan, <laughs> you know, $10 million to build a building. I mean, it was, yeah. you know, it was nuts. And my, my bank guys were, were not making those loans. So, you know, there was a real mismatch in how the regulators were allowing loans to be made similar to the housing bubble. So that one blew up and that really was development deals and a lot of multifamily and some office. So where are we today? Where's the bubble today is a, you know, a question that I've sort of meditated on. And the bubble to me today is in the debt markets and it also in um, generally the commercial market. I think that we've had a lot of discipline, you know, our bank lending platform that I've seen through Toro, we work with a lot of um, different capital sources and the banks tend to be pretty careful in their underwriting and their due diligence, but you've had a lot of sort of newer lenders that aren't, that are not banks, right? They are 
private debt funds. And they've been out making loans. Some of them have a lot of discipline. Some of them have less discipline. But this cycle is just a huge debt bomb. I mean, I look at how much debt, it's not even just in the real estate market. It's the debt at the Fed level, right? How much can we just keep printing money and creating debt? And how does that end? I don't know. Gotcha. And, you know, I guess from a standpoint of a typical individual investor, is there, is there any way that we can kind of prepare for that and a way that we can prepare ourselves to capitalize on that? Well, Jen has been like an amazing leader of a group that we're putting together called CRE Reset. And so, you know, one of the things that we see, particularly right now, is that there's a tremendous amount of dead mall space all over the country. And there's going to be, I think, a fair amount of office space that isn't going to come back. You know, work from home has become a thing. And some people will go back to work, but I'm not sure officing is going to be the same. And a whole host of other sort of unused real estate is sitting out there and only a certain small percentage of it is going to become Amazon warehouse space, right? <laughs> yeah. So what are we going to do with the rest of it? And we've, as a team, grappled with this to think about where are the opportunities? And there's a whole segment of real estate investing called, you know, value add. And value add is sort of the art and science of looking for opportunities. And I think we are going to go into that in the next cycle, and it's going to be an amazing time. So I'll add to that quickly. Uh, I'd say we're looking in the space of adaptive reuse as well. So, you know, Seth, you and I had talked earlier about the unused properties or the property types that are sunsetting, and we're absolutely applying adaptive reuse to these opportunities. That's where the future of commercial real estate is going. And uh, our group, CRE Reset, we're not shy about looking at those opportunities and spinning them to the purposes that are going to be valid, uh, you know, today and tomorrow. Gotcha. What are maybe some of those specific uh, adaptations that you guys are looking at right now? So, uh, by the way, CRE uh, reset is, is for obviously commercial real estate. That's the C, the R, and the E. And so we've uh, started to uh, look at some very interesting developments. One has been church parking lots that have been turned into affordable housing. Uh, there's somebody that's been doing that. And I, I have to get more intel on this. You might look into it. But there was a law passed in the state of California, a zoning law, apparently at the end of the year in December, that says that uh, a house of worship cannot be penalized if they use their parking lot for affordable housing by the local zoning authority. Because, you know, parking ratios are huge. Right. And in a church or a, you know, house of worship is only using that lot maybe on a Saturday or Sunday once a week. And otherwise it's sitting there just wasted. So it makes great sense to be able to use those lots for affordable housing and, and adaptive reuse there. Uh, if they can get out from under the parking ratios, you know, in, in their local city or County. So that's one huge turnaround place I'd be looking. Uh, and and I'm gonna, 
I'm going to add right. to that really quick, Lisa, um, just to add a little bit of color and detail. So the individual connected with our group who had taken that opportunity on had noticed that in one particular church parking lot that, that he owned, there were RVs parked up. And instead of initially thinking, oh, I need to kick them out, they don't belong here, he added hookups and started charging them. So that's where the idea came from. It's very uh, opportunistic and it's, you know, it very much takes advantage of the concept of adaptive reuse. Yeah, that's incredible. I don't think I've ever heard that one before. That's the first time that I've, I've heard that. And it's crazy. That's actually part of, you know, a regulation or a law. I, I had no idea that was going on. I mean, I've heard of, you know, turning... Uh, malls into self-storage and things like that that people are doing or the Kmart's into self-storage. Um, but that's a, that's a very interesting one I haven't heard before. <laughs> so that's one of the things that we want to do is we want to highlight the stories for um, people who are creating, you know, solving problems and figuring out how to take unused real estate. You know, the thing I love about real estate, why I love investing in it, they're not making it anymore, right? Right. Uh, but but it's only got value if you can figure out how to derive income from it. And therein is is the value add. So I think, you know, we're starting to see there was a deal that crossed my desk today for an empty prison because private prisons are going to be closed now under Biden. So hmm. what can you do with an empty prison? I don't know, but there's going to be a whole slew of them out there. Yeah, it's hmm, have to think about that for a little bit, but it seems like there should be something. I mean, they're specially built. They're built for they have living quarters. They have kitchens. They have all the stuff you need to live in them. So there, there's got to be a, a, a best and highest use outside of being a prison. <laughs> right. So, you know, I I think that there's going to be a whole lot of reimagining that goes on. And we feel uh, Tor one of the things I love at Toro is that we have. Um, a database of thousands of lenders, all kinds of lenders, private money, um, regular lenders, uh, credit unions can be a great source of loans, um, bridge loans, permanent loans. So we now have the resources to put together debt and equity for these creative projects. And that was one of the reasons I really wanted to join Toro two years ago is that I imagined that this time would be coming. And that the great strength would be the ability to match debt and equity when the projects started to hit that were of interest. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I was going to ask before we jump into the Freedom Four, if you guys wanted to add a little bit more color about what Toro Capital Advisors does. And so Toro Capital Advisors, we really take more of a consultative capital advisory perspective to financing. A lot of people might go to uh, intermediaries or lenders just for the the, the financing, but we really do the advisory service in addition to it all. Uh, so we provide debt options, just like Elisa had mentioned, equity options. Uh, there's LP investing options as well. So even if you, you or a syndicator has an opportunity where you're looking for LP folks, you know, we are happy to talk to you about that too. Uh, and we also provide fractional CFO services as well. Gotcha, very cool. All right, let's jump into the Freedom Four. It's time for the Freedom Four. So what's the best thing you do to keep your mind and body healthy? 
So for me, I'll just start. I've been, I've been on this conversation for a while. I've really been challenged with sleep. So I'm consistently getting myself in the right routine, whether it's, you know, getting sunlight at the same time every day, um, eating well, working out. And, uh, I've noticed the two things that have been the biggest for me is the regular sunlight and, um, just really intentionally reducing my stress day to day. So, you know, solid sleep, it's, uh, it's the one thing that raises all the ships in your Harbor. Hmm. Agreed. So I, uh, for me this past year, I mean, I've had years of stress, but this past year was, was something else, right? Because it wasn't just regular stress. It was stress combined with, I could die at any minute by going to the grocery store. (laughs) What's more stressful than that? I mean, I could die just by going for a walk with my dog. I mean, it was just, you know, if you tapped into the fear that was floating in the collective, you know, it was enough to, to feel like you just like went into the twilight zone. So I really uh, found that I've always had a meditation practice. Actually, I developed my meditation practice about 10 years ago. And I really had to cut back on the, on the media, you know, because yeah. anytime I picked up media, whether it was social or otherwise anti-social. And then we had, of course, all of the rhetoric around the election, which was so polarizing. I I would say that, you know, in the scheme of life, 2020 has to go down as one of the most crazy, stressful times on the planet earth. And so for me, you know, to exist in that, cut back media, meditate, really have a, even if it's a five or 10 minute, time out. Don't talk to me. I'm not listening. Quiet space and go for a walk. Jen says, you know, fresh air, talk to the trees, look up. That was magical for me to just be able to get away and, and be outside in nature. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's about living in the now, right? Like just enjoy the air, enjoy the sunshine, get out there and walk. Like you can't be in front of a computer and your desk and reading the news and watching the news all the time. And especially in 2020, when there was just, like you said, so much polarization in the media, it was ridiculous. I mean, you couldn't help but watch it and get just upset no matter what side of the table you were on. They just forced you to pick a side and it was just insane. Yeah. (laughs) Um, all right. So where were you guys at five years ago and where do you see yourself five years from now? So I, uh, five years ago, got my broker's license, uh, and moved sort of transitioned out from just being a lawyer, uh, that owned real estate more into the capital markets, financial world. Right. And that's been really helpful to give me sort of the confidence. I, I think that as a woman, um, in case there's any women out there that are listening, you know, one of the, one of the things I always thought is that to buy real estate, commercial real estate, or do big development projects, I needed a man, you know, I didn't think banks would give me money. And so by being a broker and brokering money for people, now I know the banks and I, yes, I got bank money for a couple self storage deals I bought, but those were already sort of rented and, and going, you know, really big development deals were banks gave them gave money mostly to men so you know getting confidence in my ability to to raise 
uh, bigger money and do development projects for this turnaround time. Uh, that was a goal of mine five years ago. And so going forward, we're in the time I've been waiting for. And I am so excited to be able to meet this challenge and look for opportunities and help people do that. That's really important to me. And when I met Jen, um, you know, she can speak for herself, but I just thought what an amazing communicator and a visionary person. And I felt like I wanted to connect with her. And so I, I feel like the next five years is the time to do this. Awesome. Jen? That's really sweet, Elisa. I appreciate that. Seth, would you repeat the question, please? Yeah. So where were you at five years ago and where do you see yourself five years from now? Thank you. Okay. So five years ago, I was doing uh, direct strategic and tactical consulting to a captain in the Department of Defense. Very interesting work. It was in the field of change management and uh, organizational restructure, strategic advisory. Um, so on a creative level, I had so much autonomy and independence. And that's exactly where I was when I realized even though I really love this, I also want to generate as many streams of passive income that I enjoy doing at the same time. And so that's when I decided um, to learn a little bit more about investing. I came upon uh, you know, specific uh, episodes of syndication, uh, about syndication on bigger pockets. And then I decided from there to lead my meetup. I have gotten my real estate's license, which has enabled me to connect with capital advisors uh, and five years from now uh, you know still connected with Elisa uh, Anthony and Avi having multiple interesting creative deals behind her belt and just broadening our influence to all passive in investors uh, and even providing education as well awesome awesome um, in an alternative universe where you guys weren't involved in your current businesses, what you, would you be doing? And feel free to be creative with this. I would be baking. I love baking. It's my <laughs> secret hobby. Awesome. What's your favorite cookie, Seth? Oh, you know what? I actually didn't even like sweets until recently. Like my, they were my, not a match. It was not a thing <laughs> for me. And But recently... I don't know what it is, but now I crave it. I hate it. I've gotten over that hump. So now I crave cookies. I crave ice cream, all the stuff that normal people always eat. And now I, I can't help but eat it. And it's just like, oh, what did I do? Opened up <laughs> Pandora's box. So can I give you a, a piece of information that might help with that, Seth? Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. So I learned that your microbiome is driving your cravings. So what happened is before when you didn't have that craving, <clears throat> you didn't have a certain threshold of the bad bacteria that feeds off of sugar and processed yeah. foods. So now that you've fed that specific population, <laughs> it's grown. And when you don't feed it, it gives off uh, toxins that you read as hunger pains that can only be satisfied by sugar and carbohydrates and processed food and whatnot. Interesting. So as long as you choose to go against that, which I know you have the discipline to do it, then you'll be totally fine. You'll start to kill off that population and you'll eventually end up where you started. We're killing off the cookie population? <laughs> <laughs> the microbiome. The, yeah, the cookie monster is in your yeah. inside. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. <laughs> Very therapeutic to throw sugar around in the kitchen, I can assure you. I bet. <laughs> I'll try some samples sometime. Um, all right, last but not least, how has passive income made your life better? 
so for me, it's allowed me to work because I want to, instead of because I have to. And so, you know, doing the loan advisory, capital advisory work, I do because I really enjoy helping people and I like the problem solving. Um, but, you know, the passive income is allowing me to, to, to turn on the lights and live at a certain level. You know, it's not unlimited. Uh, I can't go buy a G4 or a G5 yet, but, you know, it's fine. I can, I can live, I can be comfortable and I don't have to worry about money. And you know what? Not worrying about money is a freedom I wish for everyone. I agree. It gives you just a certain confidence, right? Like whenever you know that you have that passive income coming in, you don't have to worry about that job all the time. It just, it's just a freeing feeling. Yeah. Jen. And yeah, I'll back up the one thing that Elisa said, she you know, very clearly mentioned, she wants to make sure, uh, that, that anybody who wants to have options with money can, right. And so it's up to her, well, her, her desires to be able to give out that education or, or mentorship if, if we can make that connection to do so. Uh, and for me, I'm definitely not at the place where I, I'm job optional, but I am building my passive income. I do have uh, significant gains through stocks at the moment. So it's just one less thing to worry about, you know, uh, less stress, less worry, kind of like what you had mentioned. Yeah, for sure. All right, guys, I really appreciate you coming on today. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Uh, well, we'll be setting up CRE Reset uh, on Twitter, um, LinkedIn, and other social media. And uh, for loans and debt and equity, torocapitaladvisors.com. Awesome. All right, ladies, really appreciate you coming on today. Thanks. Thanks so much for having us. Thank uh, you so much. All right, folks, that was awesome. Thank you, Elisa and Jen, for sharing your stories. These ladies don't buy shoes, they buy buildings. I loved that they not only shared some of the great benefits of creating passive income through different types of real estate, but also some of the biggest risks, namely the role of debt in your equation, which you need to always carefully consider. All right, kiddos. I want to personally invite you into my world of passive investing so that you can start buying back your time. And the best way to do that is to join Epic, our Esquire Passive Investor Club, by going to PassiveIncomeAttorney.com and clicking join the club. And as always, until next time, enjoy the journey. Thank you for listening to the Passive Income Attorney Podcast with Seth Bradley. Do you want more ideas on how to generate multiple streams of passive income? Then jump over to PassiveIncomeAttorney.com for show notes and resources. Then apply for the private Facebook community by searching for the Passive Income Attorney on Facebook. And we'll see you on the next episode.